there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since 1986. Today's fact, book accuracy is overrated, which... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Annie doesn't mm-hmm. agree with this one. I agree with other instances, but this is a bad example, guys. It's the Ellen Enchanted episode. How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys. What's up? So... Hey guys, um, let's let's go back to the far off year of two thousand and one. This movie came out that um, you may have heard of that uh, that was all about how uh, we could be ironic about fairy tales and how cool it was to be ironic about fairy tales, and that kind of really set the stage for the early aughts. It was this little film called Shrek. <laughs> you may have heard of it, <laughs> and you know it was about how fairy tales. Ugh! That kind of tropes aversion because irony was cool at some point. Hey now, you're an all star. Get your game on. Go play. Yeah, that kind of changed how we looked at fairy tale movies for a while, and then you know what with one thing and another, the years start coming and they don't stop coming for three years, and then we come out to 2004, and that's when Ellen Enchanted the movie happens, based on a book from 1997. One assumes that this thing was just laboring in development hell for years. When I was maybe 12, I read Ella Enchanted the book, and then I read uh, Gail Carson Levine's other story, The Two Princesses of Bamar. And after I read them, I wrote a letter to Gail Carson Levine. And in my letter, I said, Miss Levine, hi, I have a great idea for a film about your books. Uh-oh. Would it be okay if I wrote it? And she replied, you can do it for fun, Mackenzie. But unfortunately, my movies are already in production. Unfortunately. So they're going to be released soon. You know, here's the thing. Apparently, there was originally a version of this movie that was much closer to the book. And, um, well, I have to imagine that was a screenplay that was pre-2001. And then Shrek <laughs> came out and they were like, shit, shit, shit! Kids love this! And you guys... I was trying to find some of the production history of this because this feels like a movie that was long, long laboring in production hell. And while I did discover that this movie has mm, four executive producers, three co-producers and one producer, by the way, two of those executive producers are the Weinsteins. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it's a Miramax movie, folks. Yep. I also discovered that this movie had five screenwriters. That bodes ill. No, yeah, that does indicate production hell. Get this, though. Two of these screenwriters co-wrote another movie, which also came out in 2001, which I have to imagine is part of a lot of the flavor that we have now, but not in a way that I think worked as well as the 2001 movie. Two of these co-writers wrote Legally Blonde. Oh, yeah. I love Legally Blonde, but yeah, it didn't work out in the favor here. No, I feel like they kind of grafted on some of that legally blonde magic and it didn't quite stick so gail carson levine is an author who tends to write a lot of fairy tale stories in particular usually middle grade chapter books um you'll find them in the children's section generally speaking and if you're at a scholastic book fair she takes up a good corner of the magazine she tends to write books that are fairy tales and are really steeped in fairy tale lore but tend to have almost a bit of a of a historical fiction bent to them it really reads like a magical version of Catherine called birdie so other than ella enchanted as i said she wrote two princesses of 
Maher, which is my second favorite. She wrote Fairest, The Wish, Stolen Magic is a recent one that I read. She has The Princess Tales, which are like The Fairy's Mistake, The Princess Test, and Princess Sonora. Tale of Two Castles was also a recent one. She also worked with Disney to write the fairy books, which are what the Tinkerbell movies are loosely based on. I have ostensibly read Ella Enchanted. I did not retain much of it. All I know is that I resented it because my legal name is in Gail Carson Levine's name somewhere, so people assumed that I would love this freaking book in much the same way that they assumed the little redheaded child that I was would freaking love Anne of Green Gables, and I resented both of those books immensely. Oh, I resented the Annie Broadway musical in that same way. I feel ya. Gotta say, no one ever names anybody Mackenzie, so I'm good. So Ella Enchanted is, as you may have guessed, a Cinderella retelling. However, the Cinderella retelling is something that she sort of loosely sticks with at best. It's definitely reads like one of those things where you sit there and you try and work out exactly why did this character behave in this way. And so the way that Gail Carson Levine sought to answer that was the idea that Ella is a young noblewoman who is given a fairy blessing when she is born by a fairy who doesn't really think her ideas through all the way. The opening line actually tells you this right away because it's that fool of a fairy Lucinda did not intend to lay a curse on me. And I think it's an amazing opening line. It sort of takes an idea from the stories that you have of Briar Rose slash Sleeping Beauty, where she is given gifts of virtue and so forth by fairies. Except Lucinda, the fairy that gives Ella a blessing, tells her that she will be obedient, which means that Ella is now cursed to obey pretty much any direct order. Otherwise, she starts breaking out in sweats and getting dizzy and basically passing out. That's not how the movie does it, though. The movie just has her, like, cartoonishly puppet her way through every action she's told to do. They really play fast and loose with idioms in there too. And so the idea is that Ella is a young woman. Her mother dies. We are not doing the thing where the father is much of a character or really all that important at all aside from being a vague antagonist slash obstacle. So we're not doing the uh, ever after thing where this chick's just obsessed with her dad. Ten minutes in, he fucking dies. <laughs> minutes exactly <laughs> 10 minutes on the dot 10 zero 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 <laughs> So instead, she gets sent off to finishing school with uh, the girls that will eventually be her ugly stepsisters. And by ugly, we mostly mean they're just very mean or stupid or both. In the actual book itself, we have her mom's funeral. In it, she actually meets the prince who tries to cheer her up. Right. We have to do the thing. We kind of talked about this a little bit in our Ever After episode, where generally speaking, the way to fix a lot of Cinderella is to have Cinderella and the prince meet up beforehand and become friends. Except uh, the book does this without, ugh, he's so awful. I I hate him, but also he's hot. Guys, we don't give a shit about the book. We're here to talk about how book accuracy is overrated. Okay. <laughs> Ella leaves finishing school, tries to go to find Lucinda, undo the curse. It doesn't quite work out. Ella's father basically ollies out of the entire book and then things suck for Ella, but eventually she gets together with the prince. Here's the thing, the, because of the pacing of it, it really wouldn't have worked all that well as a movie as it was. I completely agree with this. I reread this recently that that book would not have made a very good movie. Why, why did this happen though? Well, you see, Anne Hathaway was this up and coming actress. And I want to state for the record that I like this movie. <sighs> 
I do too. In the way that I like a lot of really bad movies. Exactly. I like that. And honestly, I might actually think it's a really good, um, just a, just a cheerful kids film if it didn't include the words Ella Enchanted. See, that's the thing, right? It's like e- even this movie, aside from the sort of obedience curse, it barely uses the framework of Cinderella or even anything established in Ella Enchanted at all. It's it's so completely divergent. I don't understand why. Honestly, it kind of reminds me of the Jim movie in that if they just remove Jim. It would be a teen flick, whatever. It reminds me a lot of the Super Mario Brothers movie where you can see enough threads of where these things connect to like parts in the source material, but you can see where it just diverged so freaking wildly. Honestly, I still harbor such resentment for Ella Enchanted that I look at the movie and I go, you deserve this. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just make one point here. Books and movies are completely different beasts. They need to be adapted into a completely different medium. That's how this thing generally tends to work. Good adaptations will change things in the story, but stay true to the core of the characters. Ella Enchanted does not do that at all, and I think that's why I really, why it doesn't sit well with me at all. And I mean, I'm saying this looking at this movie poster that's a unicorn and sunglasses on the cover. That ought to be my jam. (laughs) I'm actually really mad that unicorn and sunglasses never made an appearance in the movie seriously so we have all this we have this book that is a bit more grounded in fairy stories we have shrek we have adaptations we have so many producers and screenwriters we have the legally blonde folks try to take a stab at this and bring some joy back into it and well it kind of works and it kind of doesn't and all of this comes to make a movie that is anachronistic for not a whole lot of good reasons and is narrated by eric frickin idol listen he was not busy <laughs> I think at this point, he was like half-assing his way through another version of the Journey into Imagination ride at Epcot. So, Ella Enchanted. I love this movie. Which starts, as all good movies do, with narration and voiceover, our favorite thing, only this one's in rhyming couplets by Eric Idle. Bad rhyming couplets. And it's got that good, good 2004 CGI. And it's like flowing through the countryscape and we see the Ellas from a place, a city called Frel. Even though it was a kingdom in the book. And for some reason, they decide that Ella can't have a last name. So everybody in the movie just calls her Ella of Frel all the time. The fact that Frel is a swear word in Farscape makes this extra joyful for me. Oh, that's good to know. It zooms in on Ella, who's there with uh, her mom and Mandy, who is a fairy godmother who's really bad at magic. In the book, Mandy does exist. She's a fairy godmother basically for Ella and her mother's entire line. They are fairy people and Ella and her mother have a drop of fairy blood in them somewhere. Not enough to actually make much of a difference aside from them having tiny feet. Yes, that's real. Mandy in the book is very interested in not doing big magic. You can do small things like make soup taste better or make some tonic that heal you up faster. But big magic, basically the book treats like a butterfly effect. You don't know what could happen if you change the weather, which makes Lucinda, who shows up here in a minute, even worse. Also uh, in the movie, Mandy is a quote unquote house fairy and played by Minnie Driver, who I forgot was in this movie. So Ella is born and like most babies, I guess, is randomly visited upon by some fairy to be given a blessing. And her mom and uh, Mandy quickly hide her in a closet to try and avoid this because it's Lucinda giving the, the blessing. And in pops Lucinda. Played by Vivica A. Fox in the most 2004-ass costume I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so the costumes in this movie, I tried to find the words for it. The costuming in Ella Enchanted is like if all of the worst fashions from 1998 to 2002 got together 
watched the brandy version of Rogers and Hammerstein Cinderella, <laughs> went on a bender, knocked over a Justice tweens clothing store and a Claire's just for good measure, drove out to a Ren Fest, got even more hammered on mead turkey legs and some boxed wine they smuggled in and then threw up all over the dead bob show yeah that sounds about right until you get to the background actors in which case it looks like they put out a call for people who've larped all the time yeah there's some larpers intermixed in here but a lot of it is like weird tunics with butterfly sleeves over skirts and everything's loud and awful and uncomfortable looking frankly now that I think of it, basically this entire movie looks a lot like Ren Fair. It's got that same level of cartoony medievalness. Yeah. So Lucinda finds the baby who swings open on a door in her bindle on a coat hook, which is a pretty good bit. Yeah, there's some good sight gags in this movie. And the baby immediately starts fussing when uh, Vivica A. Fox picks her up. So in order to get her to stop fussing, Vivica A. Fox is like, you'll be obedient now. And the baby shuts up and goes to sleep. And they're like, oh, why would you do this? This is terrible. And she's like, nope, it's great. Goodbye. I'm pretty sure Lucinda spends this whole movie on a bender, by the way. Oh, definitely. Which the fact that there's a time skip in between, she spent the entire time skip on a bender. Absolutely. So we go through in the next couple of minutes, pretty rapid fire. Ella runs into trouble by people telling her to be obedient. The thing is that like in the movie, they lean really into her having to take idioms literally. Bite me. Okay. By the way, there's some fantasy racism in there. The movie's only brown girl is getting bullied and Ella stands up for her and then bites a girl because she was told to. And then they become best friends. This is a character that Ella meets in the finishing school in the book. She is Aya Thorin. She teaches Ella her own language. They're a neighboring kingdom that the prince actually goes to study in for a while as sort of a friendship initiative. But none of that matters here. Also, it's Aorthian in the movie. Anyway, this girl's name is Orita. Um, you would think she's a major part of the movie, but she's in it for probably like 15 minutes. Yeah, she's got like five lines. So we pan through Ella being very obvious about her orders and no one notices that she's responding to orders in this way. Right. The book gets around this a little by saying that she's, you know, from a noble manor. So it's not like she's going to public school and having birthday parties and talking with a whole lot of kids her age. But here she definitely did go to fantasy public school. Where also her future stepsisters also go to fantasy public school for some reason. So eventually after her mother's death. Her mother's death of plot convenience. Yeah. Yeah, plot convenience. Be true to yourself, Ella. You are so strong, etc., etc. Have my necklace. <laughs> her dad marries uh, Dame Olga. And uh, then he's like, anyway, I'm leaving. Bye. And then he's never in the plot again. Like he shows up at the end and he's like, by the way, I do care about my daughter. Listen, none of that matters because the wicked stepmother in this movie is played by Joanna Lumley. Oh, but she's only <laughs> in it for like five minutes. It's such a loss. Listen, this movie has so many actors who are great, but are in this movie for five minutes. They just clip through real fast. Honestly, this movie has like, it is trouble paying attention to anything for like any length of time. Anyway, Joanna Lumley rolls up to the house. It's like that Ever After thing where the house is actually pretty modest. So she's kind of like, oh. Oh, this is gross. I thought you said you lived in a castle. But we meet the stepsisters, and I need to point out that the girl who plays Hattie, who's the older stepsister, has played Cinderella's ugly stepsister four separate times in four <laughs> separate movies. <laughs> 
One of them was in Into the Woods, where she's basically in it for five seconds again. This isn't a coincidence. This actress really likes playing the ugly stepsister. I don't know why. Honestly, <laughs> like, they put on Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella in my high school when I was there. And, like, clearly the girls who played the stepsisters were having the most fun. This actress's name is Lucy Punch, by the way. Look forward to her in every Cinderella movie. Here's the thing, like, especially with Hattie and Olive, this is where we really see just how very 2004 the costume design is. Hattie is always dressed in this, like, very garish, bright orange, and Olive is always in these, like, boa-lined purple frocks. Also, she's got scrunchy pigtails. Yeah, they do the thing where they try to adhere to this idea of ugly stepsisters, and by ugly they mean perfectly normal-looking people, but we give them bad haircuts. Hattie's haircut isn't even that bad for 2004. I mean, at least they didn't go the, the body-shaming route like Ever After did. Thank God. No, they just constantly make fun of Olive for being stupid instead, because we can't have anything. Also, Ella's dad and Joanna Lumley apparently met at the Nobleman's Convention. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like that's worth mentioning. So we find out that Hattie and Olive are really interested in one thing, and that is the Backstreet Boys. And by Backstreet Boys, we mean Backstreet Boy, who is the prince. Who is not really a heartthrob, but okay, this is a make-pretend fantasy world. I mean, he's played by Hugh Dancy, so he's pretty enough, but every time I look at him, I can't help but see, like, Will Graham all sweaty and covered in blood in Hannibal. Which is some people's thing, but not mine. <laughs> also, like, sometimes throughout the movie, he just sort of shows up in random shots with this, like, really bad wispy mustache he's trying to grow out. It's a barcode. It's real bad. <laughs> So Charmont's parents are dead. He is being raised by his uncle, and he and his uncle both, I guess, made it illegal to be a fairy tale creature, and that somehow meant that it worked and they enslaved everyone. It's more Shrek racism. So elves have to sing and dance and giants have to farm and ogres are banished to the dark forest or whatever. While Hattie and Olive are hanging up all of their uh, Prince Charmont posters, they complain that their closet is too small and then demand that Ella show them her closet and then steal her closet, decide to throw out some of her clothes, and then demand that she hand over the necklace her mom gave her. And Hattie very clearly figures out that Ella has an obedience curse on her because it's very obvious in the film. Yeah, and then we go to, like, the expository community college debate sequence. Oh, yeah. Where we find out about all the Shrek racism. And Hattie is, again, figuring out that Ella has to do whatever she's told, up to and including idioms like hold your tongue. From community college sequence, we cut to inside of the royal carriage, where we finally meet Edgar, Charmont's uncle, as played by Carrie Elwes, who knows what movie he's in. Carrie Elwes is the only actor who knows exactly how garbage of a movie he's in. And he is eating the scenery. He chews the scenery like it's an all-you-can-eat buffet at a studio backlot. <laughs> they have dyed his hair black. He has a waxed mustache and a pet <laughs> snake. A pet talking <laughs> snake named Heston. I looked this up while I was trying to find some, like, history of the production of this movie. I was mostly looking at the screenplay, but what I found are two interesting facts. One, Heston the snake was originally going to be a puppet, but they decided they could make him CGI and give him so much more freedom. That's why he's mostly hanging on stuff. Also, he's a freaking snake. A talking snake. We don't care. Two, most of this movie was filmed in Ireland. And so what they had to do to make most of these scenes is they had to digitally... It blew in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was too gray and overcast. They had to digitally blew up the sky. Oh, it's almost like there's a reason nobody shoots in Ireland. So we get some little conversations about fantasy racism and how Prince Charmot is not particularly interested in ruling. Turns out that an ogre killed Charmont's dad, and that's why Edgar is the regent. And also Charmont is reading a magazine called Damsel Zone, which I don't know why that tickles me, but it does. And at one point, Carrie Elwes, who, need I remind you, has black hair, wears black and red robes, has a waxed mustache, and carries around a pet snake everywhere, says, image is everything. If you thought <laughs> Lucius Malfoy was too subtle... <laughs> Do we have a character for you? All of the heraldry of the kingdom, he's already put in black and red snakes. So we go to the mall opening, and it turns out that the mall opening features a statue of Charmont with Edgar standing, like, maliciously, menacingly behind him. And I was like, oh, that's an ominous statue. <laughs> it's a weird choice. Meanwhile, Ella and Arita in the background are, like, trying to do a protest against Shrek racism. It doesn't work very well. Especially since Hattie comes over and orders Ella to go home. But as Ella is walking home, in comes Charmont being pursued by a gaggle of girls. Exit pursued by a gaggle. They do a little, we fall in each other, hatred meet cute. You know what I look back on fondly? What? Fantasy meet cutes that involve smacking someone right in the freaking head with an apple. So after the Beatlemania crowd has passed, Charmont and Ella have their whole, oh, I don't like you. Oh, I kind of like you because you don't like me. Let's talk about our feelings. Meet cute. At one point, he actually says the line, perhaps that's why I find your obvious disdain so refreshing, which is like, way to read out your stage direction. Oh my God. He even says, you know, Ella, you're not like other girls. She's not like the other girls. <laughs> Take a drink. Anyway, then she realizes she left her purse behind. He goes back to get it, but says, stay right there. Oh, God, here we go. And then there's this cart coming down the road at top speed for no reason. You know, carts, they can't, like, go off of the road. They can't veer off of a dirt path at all. You know, carts also have a built-in automatic braking system called a fucking horse. <laughs> I like it when we treat movie horses as either dogs or horses that have the same kind of self-preservation instincts as video game horses. Basically a car engine with legs. And so Ella's almost hit by the horse that just does not care. And he doesn't even seem to respond to the fact that he almost ran someone over. He just leaves. It's definitely the fantasy movie equivalent of the semi-truck speeding down a residential neighborhood. Or if you're watching a Fifty Shades movie, the ultra-lethal bike messenger. <laughs> <laughs> So Charmont dives in at the very last second and pushes her off the road. And he's like, oh, why'd you make me save you? And she's like, I would have been fine. I had a plan. Leave me alone. And then she leaves. Because who shows up but Hattie? And then Hattie proceeds to be really, really creepy on Charmont, including like standing outside his window and watching him turn his lights on and off. And he's like, I gotta go. Hattie is definitely like unpleasant to Char in the books and really, really obvious. But I don't think she quite gets to the stalker level we have here, which is maybe a misstep. Of course, they're all like 14 years old in the books. So yeah, they just all behave like 14 year olds in the movie. Anyway, there's a bit of a time skip and we're back at the fantasy mall, which has a fantasy escalator where all your dreams come true. Um, <laughs> They've got a deal for you and it's glass shoes. Anyway, Ella's talking about how she definitely doesn't like Prince Charmont and Arita's like, yeah, but he's a prince in a fantasy movie, so you're going to end up marrying him probably. And she's like, no, <laughs> shut up. 
And Rita's like, yeah, I, I'm a brown person in a fantasy movie made in the United States. Th- these are pretty much all the lines I have. Meanwhile, Hattie and Oliver are like, hey, have you noticed there's something weird about Ella? Finally. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they're like, I bet we can make her steal stuff. And they can, so they do. Yeah, these are the only time we're ever going to see the glass slippers in this whole movie. Which they probably get smashed to shit over the course of the ensuing chase scene, but whatever. As a fair note, the glass slippers barely show up in the book. They're there for like five seconds when they just sort of stumble across them in the castle. And then Ella wears them later at one of the three balls. But not here. They're just like, hey, Ella, should you steal these glass sneakers with laces or these glass slippers? Take the slippers. Go have a wacky chase scene. Complete with, like, hilariously incompetent guards. And I'm surprised that none of the guards at any point yells stop, but then later on in the chase scene that he yells freeze instead, which apparently means defy all laws of physics and freeze midair. Yeah, she's jumping over a barrel and just stops. Like, Matrix stops. Anyway, she gets arrested, and then we cut to Joanna Lumley just wailing her head off about how she's got a felon in the family, which shoplifting is a misdemeanor, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Elreda stops by to say, hey, what's up? I see you got arrested. Also, you've been kind of blowing me off lately. Do you want to talk about that? I'm your best friend. Hattie basically makes her say, never want to see you again. Also, some racist shit about Aorthians. Yep. And then we cut to Ella crying because this is the worst thing the curse has ever made her do, which is actually a, a pretty believable moment. And that's actually something from the book as well, except Hattie basically orders Ella next time she sees her that they can never be friends again and doesn't quite go so far as also say some racist shit to her. But that is the thing that makes Ella say, screw finishing school. I'm going to go fix this curse thing. Meanwhile, Mandy's here. And as Ella decides that she needs to go fix the curse, Mandy is like, okay, have you met my boyfriend? He's a book. I accidentally turned him to a book. Yeah, you've just been living here for your entire life. You're probably like 19. You've never met my fantasy book boyfriend. Ella does get a magic book when she's sent off to finishing school, but it does not talk to her because that's stupid. I like the talking book. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Especially since he apparently functions as both like surveillance state and Google Maps. (laughs) (laughs) He's also sassy about it. Yeah, so Mandy basically apparently tried to do a spell on her boyfriend and somehow that turned him into a book. And that's pretty much all the explanation we're going to get there. She says it was a haircut. So I think the implication is that she accidentally decapitated him and then put him in a book to save his life. Wow, that's way more grim than I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so she's like, take my boyfriend. He can be a map or something. And Ella's like... All right. They could open him up and spy on anyone they want, but it doesn't tell them where they are. It just shows them where they are. And they figure out that uh, Lucinda's going to a wedding in Giantville. That's right. It's just called Giantville. Yep. Ella heads off in an incredibly impractical, featherlight blue cloak. But not before putting poison ivy in her stepmother and stepsister's bouquets for the portrait sitting they're doing tomorrow. Anyway, she's off walking through the forest like you do and checking Google Maps, Benny. Benny is the name of the book boyfriend, by the way. And she hears someone begging for help. And it turns out that it's an elf named Slannon who is strapped to one of those circus knife throwing wheels. What it's doing out in the woods, I have no idea. Anyway, they've got the circus knife throwing wheel and some dudes are throwing knives at him for reasons. Just being random bullies, I guess. Yeah, that's what bullies do. Ella steps in and then realizes very quickly that she does not actually know how to defend herself against three random ass dudes in the woods. Luckily, she does. She's ordered to. Hey, guys, (laughs) remember that scene in Shrek where Fiona did kung fu? 
because when a girl character can kick butt, she does kung fu. And the bandits or whatever run off and we never see them again or get any explanation as to why they were doing what they're doing. And Ella cuts the elf down from the wheel. Now, you may be forgiven for remembering that there was a time before the Lord of the Rings movies came out and everybody accepted those as the prime elves in fantasy. You know, the tall, statuesque, beautiful high elves. Instead, we have, I guess these elves are based more on Christmas elves or like shoemaker elves. They're Keebler elves. They're short. They wear green. But after an awkward, I'm not racist scene, uh, Slannon ends up taking Ella out to dinner, but it's in the elf village and they're trying to sneak in because he doesn't want them to see her. And it turns out that's because every time they see a newcomer, they break into Let Me Entertain You from Cabaret, which is a whole extra layer of something. I guess evil Uncle Rothbart Cary Elwes, I guess he passed a law that said the elves all have to sing and dance all the time. And I guess if you pass a law, people have to do it even when no one's looking. This movie is very clearly trying to execute some kind of theme of people being forced to do things they don't want to do. So Slannon doesn't like singing and dancing. Slannon doesn't want to make toys. Slannon wants to be a- not a dentist. He wants to be a lawyer. That's going to like come back for five seconds later. Don't hold your breath. (laughs) Also, a bunch of elves keep popping in with like a mariachi band doing musical numbers. And it was kind of funny the first time. It's not any of the subsequent times. Yeah, this movie is kind of a half-assed jukebox musical. But there's only two proper song and dance numbers. Anyway, we cut back to the house and uh, Ella has apparently been invited to the coronation, which Joanna Lumley and the stepsisters are real mad about. The only good thing about this scene is that after they're finished screeching about the fact that Ella got invited and they didn't, Joanna Lumley schemes to get Hattie into the coronation and a quote, a shot at her future husband. And you see Mandy in the background plug her ears right before Hattie starts screeching with joy. Anyway, we cut back to the woods where Slannon gets scared by a rabbit and then they hear another rustling in the bushes and Slannon's like, oh, it must be another rabbit, you know, like an idiot. Womp womp. It turns out it's an ogre instead. The ogres in the books, like, they, they eat people. They eat people for funsies. And, like, their language essentially makes, taps into something in your brain and basically sort of hypnotizes you into being their friend and being docile while they eat you. So that makes a bit more sense as to why ogres are outlawed. In, in the book, too, um, all the languages that Ella's learning becomes relevant because she's also learned a lot of ogres. And eventually she can actually mimic them and get them to listen to her. But we don't give a shit about the book. We're here for the movie. So instead, Ella gets told to hold still. So she gets tied up and then dangled over a stew pot. And then Prince Charmant in leather pants appears. I'm not joking. He's literally wearing leather pants. Yeah, it's disquieting. There's definitely some questionable imagery, too, with these ogres who speak Cockney English, but they also have, like, kilts and the blue paint of the Scots, and there's some associations that aren't super great with Charmont coming in to, like, kill them. He doesn't actually end up killing them, though, so whatevs. No, it's like G-rated movie. It's like G-rated sword fighting, and then they run off. And then he rescues Ella, and then she's like, oh, you're bleeding, you know, the classic thing of, oh, you're bleeding, let me tend to your wounds. And then she rips her skirt, and everyone's like, more wounds, more wounds! And he's like, Lear, let me take my shirt off so you can patch up my upper arm. That's not even really bleeding, I've just got it like a slash shirt. Because no one, none of these knights that have come with Charmont have any kind of healing supplies at all, they have to rely on this girl. Anyway, Ella and Charmont have their banter, you can hear my sarcastic quote marks. It's moopy as hell. And then uh, he decides to go with her to Giantville. And there's there's a sort of running subplot with this that never totally gets anywhere of Ella being like, y- you know, you're like going to be in charge of things and you can have the power to stop fantasy racism laws. And he's like, 
He just keeps trying to pass it off to his uncle. It doesn't quite get resolved in the end, but I mean, you know, this movie doesn't quite keep paying attention to anything for particularly long. Anyway, as they're panning off to Ella and Char and Slannon riding off into the distance, you see Heston the Snake pop out of uh, his saddlebag and turn and look directly at the camera and say, oh, this is an interesting development. Like, who the f*** are you talking to? <laughs> look, he had to be CGI. They needed to have more freedom of expression for this very obvious talking snake. I don't understand. No one ever questions the talking snake. No one's ever like, does it seem insidious that he has a talking Talking snake, historically, having a talking snake doesn't really work out in that guy's favor. They're riding along the beach or whatever, and they've been blue into the sky, and they've been blue into the water, and they're having a conversation about, again, how Char can fix fantasy racism, and he's, like, not committing to it, and then Ella has a bit of a fit about, like, nobody should be forced to do something they don't want to do because she's projecting, and she rides off into the distance, and he chases after her. And also Slannon's here. They ride up onto the edge of a cliff where the green screen is and oh look it's a very poorly cgi giant who's just a regular person but made big in photoshop so here's my question how do you enslave giants how do you a regular sized person enslave giants they've just got like some rope ladders with whips and this is working somehow they're gentle annie not really in the climax we see that like the giants could very easily just be like stop it but they don't no it's fantasy racism and passed a rule that said giants have to be slaves so they're like well i guess it's in the laws they go to the wedding afterwards which is at this like one pub and they are the worst costumes by the way this scene is the most awful in terms of costumes the giant costumes are real bad like even by the standards of this movie they're just like normal modern 2004 clothes they're greeted by this giant is doing his best to do a vincent d'onofrio imitation it's not quite panning out yeah and this entire sequence is just like a regular bar sequence but shot from like the floor and also ella and char have been photoshopped to be real small yeah sometimes they're on a table where there are big plates there's a bit where Char is like, oh, I don't I don't want to talk to the giants. What if they're mad at me? And she's like, they don't hold a grudge. They're bigger than that. And the entire movie groans. Womp womp. And I kind of love how bad that pun is. <laughs> Meanwhile, Slannon meets a giantess in the background. Played by Heidi Klum, yes. Yeah. They both grouse over the Grimm Brothers stories, which raises so many questions about this world state to me. Anyway, it's time for a musical number. Remember how we said this is a jukebox musical, kind of? The Giants are trying to get Slannon to sing. Slannon doesn't <laughs> sing. So the Giants are like, okay, Ella, how about you sing instead? And they're like, please don't. And they're like, sing. And the song that comes out of her mouth. Okay, listen. There's a rule. You know how Somebody to Love is like one of the most soulful, energetic songs in the English language? And you know how it's sung by Freddie Mercury, one of the most passionate, talented singers in the history of man? Anne Hathaway is a fine actress. She is not a belter. She's an okay singer. She can carry a tune better than some other folks, but it's okay. But here's the thing. You don't sing a Freddie Mercury song if you can't match that. Because otherwise, even if you're not quite as good as Freddie Mercury, even if you're just one step below him, you're going to sound terrible. Counterpoint. I'm thinking of that karaoke uh, episode of Jim, the comic, where it's all about enthusiasm. You gotta have enthusiasm if you're singing <laughs> Queen. Even if you sing Queen and you're fucking awful, if you have enthusiasm, you're okay in my book. She does appear to be, like, doing her best, which gets her a lot of points in my book. Especially once they tell her to sing more enthusiastically. 
But I just, Freddie Mercury was some kind of elfin, bisexual, incandescent god brought onto Earth. And we were not good enough. We, we could not prove ourselves worthy of his love, though we try every day. It's a lot to live up to, especially a song written by and for Freddie Mercury. It's not what I would book my entire wedding entertainment around, is what I'm saying. Uh, we do have some giant backup singers who are pretty great, though. Yeah. Anyway, after the singing is over, it ends with like her getting dipped by Prince Charmon, and that means they're in love now, I guess. And then Ella spots some fairies over in the corner, and she's like, shit, I came here to find Lucinda. <laughs> Hey, remember the plot? We kind of forgot about it for a while. What's up? I, I swear, this scene here really reminds me of, like, the equivalent of after the bandits are like, oh, Drew Barrymore, you're good. Come on. Come hang out with us, Drew Barrymore. It's like that part in Ever After, except with way less sexual tension. So it turns out that Lucinda's already left the wedding, and Ella grabs the book and tells Benny to show her Lucinda. And Lucinda is apparently getting an FWI, which immediately gets clarified to flying while intoxicated, which I feel like is a joke that did not need a clarification no it didn't no nope. I mean, fwi by itself is a pretty self-evident joke is lucinda sober at any point in this movie no in the book she does end up finding lucinda here but like it doesn't quite work out lucinda doesn't recognize her and she pretends to be someone else because she doesn't want lucinda to turn her into a squirrel for being ungrateful instead it's just sort of i don't know lucinda's gone we had a dance number instead don't worry about it slandon's definitely gonna like have a real kinky relationship with a giant. And anyway, then Char and Ella bond over dead moms. You have a dead mom? I have a dead mom. Your mother was Martha? <laughs> <laughs> Why did you know that name? <laughs> Char is like, hey, we have access to all the census information at the palace, and that's not a huge violation of privacy. Why don't you come look at the records to figure out where Lucinda is? I love that one of the central like plot points in this movie is looking at some census data. It's so incongruous with how, like, out there the rest of the movie is. It, it's so normal. And nothing about this movie is normal. Not even the escalator. So they start riding up to the city, and there's, like, that shot where they ride up to the top of the hill and then stop, and you can see the city in the distance. And they had to stop at that exact moment because otherwise they would collide with a matte painting. Well, we have to go look at the place where Shrek is going to take Fiona tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, so we can stop and she can turn into an ogre at night. And then Donkey can find out. But as they're riding through the city, there's like a sign that is like the Roman numeral four and then seasons because it's the four seasons. Womp womp. Meanwhile, remember how Cinderella had ugly stepsisters? Let's check back in on them. Hang on, I'm trying. I got lost in my notes, so I'm trying to figure out if we're at Edgar's crest is a black E on a red field with a snake in it or the entire throne room is snakes. <laughs> <laughs> So meanwhile, uh, Hattie and Olive are doing this like fangirl tour of the palace that involves like tonguing the floor because Prince Char has walked on the floor. It's real bad. It's intense. And then they're like, show us where Char showers. It's like, wow, this is wow. It is a whole movie full of thirsty girls roaming the countryside. And then Char and Ella come in through the exact wrong door and another Beatlemania sequence ensues. And meanwhile, Hattie and Olive are like, was that Ella? What the frick? So after escaping the fangirls, Char and Ella run into Edgar, who is being very obviously evil to the point where, like, the snake is draped over his staff, which has a big angular E carved onto it. It's like, yes, hello, this is my nephew. I will be very happy to willingly and under all of my own power uh, give him the throne in, like, two days. It will be fine. 
I'm totally cool with this. Cool, cool, cool. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. This is my talking snake. There's this bit where they like introduce like, oh, Ella, I'd like you to meet my uncle Edgar. And this is Heston. And there's this pregnant pause. And I'm waiting for him to say his talking (laughs) snake. (laughs) This is my uncle. And this is his... Heston. Which is a pretty good bit. Yeah, I genuinely liked that. (laughs) No one knows what to make of this talking snake. He's just there. It's like their eyes just slide right over him because it's too weird. He's too obviously evil. It doesn't match up. So Edgar's like, so yeah, after you show Ella where the records room is, come in for your outfit fitting and hop to it. And Ella proceeds to hop all the way to the records room. Womp womp. To his credit, though, Char just sort of watches Ella hop down a hallway for no reason. He just kind of shrugs, looks at his uncle and hops back while maintaining (laughs) eye contact. They get to the records room and the latest census, which is, they say it's the census from this year, is covered in decades worth of dust. (laughs) Like to the point where she drops it on the table and there's this big dust cloud and it's like, what? How bad is it in here? And the only other black person in this movie is the librarian. Yeah, it's Vivica A. Fox and this lady and that's it. She has like two lines. Uh, And then she drops Benny in a recycling bin later. Because you recycle books. We go to the outfit fitting where like Edgar is grilling Char about Ella. There's not really much that comes of this scene, honestly. Just, you know, she's not like other girls. She wants fantasy racism to not (laughs) exist. And Edgar is, like, very obviously evil in this conversation, and Char does not catch on. At this point, he deserves to be killed. Also, the snake, the talking snake, fills him in on all of the stuff he observed, because, you know, it's very obvious that Ella has an obedience curse, and even the snake can figure this out, and he spent half the movie in a saddlebag. Cut back to the records room, where Ella is not having any luck finding Lucinda in the gigantic six-inch-thick census book. And then she asks Benny to show her Lucinda, and he opens up to her passed out on a bed and Ella manages to locate a little pamphlet in the view of the camera which is the oh god done fly in retirement community for fairies that's right not only is it a stupid pun but also the census plot point did not matter well it did because she has to look up the address for the done fly in retirement communities for fairies Oh, okay. My bad. It's a good movie. I do kind of genuinely love Dunflyin as a name for a retirement <laughs> community for fairies. Anyway, then Edgar comes in. Oh, wait, we, we forgot. We forgot that Edgar meets up with Hattie and Hattie tells him that Ella has an obedience curse. Right. And he's like, hey, so how about you like hook up with my nephew if you tell me everything you know about Ella? And she's like, yes, please. <laughs> and thank you. Yeah, that scene is honestly way too long for the information it imparts. Yeah, it's like, we get it. Hattie is thirsty. Anyway, Edgar comes in and is like, hi, I'm obviously evil. You're going to assassinate Char when he asks you to marry him. And also, you're not going to tell anyone about it. This is his first draft of this Kill the Prince plot. And you may ask yourself, if he just wanted to kill the prince before his coronation, why hasn't he just done it beforehand, like when he was a baby? To that, I say shut up. This is his first plan, which is honestly a little convoluted, but pretty okay. And this plan is... Get the obedient girl whom Char trusts to act as a sleeper agent and then stab Char in the heart, which later is interpreted to stab him in the back, literally. It's fine. Whatever. The heart's in there somewhere. She'll find it. This is a pretty solid plan for, like, an obviously evil person. His second draft is not good. His second draft is my favorite thing in the movie. But we'll get to that. And by the way, emotionally speaking, uh, in terms of tone, this movie has taken a complete 180. Yeah, this got real grim. Yeah, like it starts off pretty funny uh, when he's playing around with the obedience curse. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, by the way, you're going to kill Char. And so, wow, this got real dramatic real quick. (laughs) 
Yeah, because he's like telling her to do the hokey pokey. It's like you put your left foot in, you put your left foot out, you put your left foot in, and you murder my nephew. My favorite part of this, though, is when Ella is like, why would you do this? And Carrie Elwes just looks right at the camera and says, I want to be king. And then Heston's like, duh. Carrie Elwes is a gem. He also lets slip that like... He killed Char's dad, just like she has that information in her pocket for later. Because we couldn't have possibly guessed that. At the very least, Char would never have guessed it. Anyway, Ella decides that her solution to this problem is to uh, never see Char again, or at least not till after the coronation, and flee the city and run into Slannon, who's just kind of like hanging out with a goat. And she's a little suspicious of that, (laughs) but... She's just like, never mind. And then she's like, I need you to chain me to a tree that has a face in it. The fact that the tree has a face in it never goes anywhere. It's just kind of there. And he's like, okay. So, Mac, do you want to take how this works out in the book or do you want me to do it? Yeah. So she and Char have been exchanging letters while he's off in, uh, in Aorthia. As they're exchanging these letters back and forth, eventually Char comes out that he loves her. And Ella's like, crap, I don't know what I can do because if I, I could I could marry him, but then he'd be in danger and I'd be even, even more danger because people could use me to assassinate the king. And she writes out a letter claiming to be happy. Hattie. In the letter, Hattie writes up that L was just a manipulative liar and had actually run off with a very rich and very fancy man after tiring of Char's letters and he should forget all about her. And then we see in the book Char throwing all of Ella's letters into the fire. And then when these balls come around after Char returns from Iathora, Ella's like, fine, I'm never going to see him again. I'm never going to get married to him. I've lost the love of my life. I'm 15 years old. I'm just going to dress up for this mask and just go look at him at least. And she does. She invents a fake name that is Layla. (laughs) You didn't come up with your fake name before you had to show up to the ball. (laughs) She is 15 years old. She is 15. What was your plan? And uh, then she does end up dancing with him and and making him laugh and and obviously pleases him. But she has to leave before midnight. Lucinda has uh, appeared again and has helped her with like some necklaces and stuff. Lucinda learns her lesson in the book. Mandy basically double dog dares her to live three months as a squirrel and three months being obedient and see how she likes it. And Lucinda does not like it, it turns out. Not at all. So she swears off doing big magic, but she does like, you know, make a carriage from a pumpkin and all that. Which Mandy notes as big magic, but Lucinda's like, nah, it's not that big of a deal. So, you know, Lucinda learns a lesson, but not a big one, but she does learn something. Yeah, unlike in the movie. Meanwhile, in the film... Ella is tied to the tree with a face on it. And she has also sent Prince Char a letter that's basically just like, I can't be with you. And that's it. Keep in mind, she has been trying to track down Lucinda on and off this whole movie. Nothing has worked. Lucinda could be anywhere in the kingdom. She is magic. By anywhere in the kingdom, we mean she crashes face first into the field right next to this tree. Listen, Lucinda is a fairy. She knows when she's needed for the plot. Lucinda reads the situation completely wrong, uh, refuses to take back the obedience curse, and is like, but since I am really nice, I'm gonna free you from being chained up to this tree. And Ella's like, wait, what? And that's pretty much, aside from, you know, a crowd scene in the last bit, that's as much as we're gonna see Lucinda. She, she did nothing in this movie. She just made things worse. I do really like the bit where Lucinda's like, well, you obviously can't go to the ball in that. Snaps her fingers. There's a puff of smoke. Ella is now wearing this gorgeous gown, but she's just kind of standing there and weaving like, oh, that hurt. Like being spontaneously dressed, I imagine, would. Oh, yeah. Especially in like anything that's vaguely medieval. There's a bodice going on there. There is a corset. And then she is magically compelled like a puppet to get dragged off to the palace. Yep, because it's midnight, and that is when evil Uncle Rothbart told her to go stab his nephew. 
Specifically, he's going to take her to the Hall of Mirrors, ask her a question, and when he does, she is going to stab him in the heart. Right. The Hall of Mirrors, like every castle has. (laughs) This one's a really overgrown Hall of Mirrors. I don't know what happened here. (laughs) Nothing good. Char, of course, is going to ask her to marry him because, you know, they've known each other for two days and she's not like other girls. And then the clock strikes midnight and she starts chanting, no, 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 because she's scared because she's going to stab him. Then she pulls the knife out of nowhere because that dress, I'm pretty sure, does not have pockets. Nope. And then because we're in the Hall of Mirrors, Ella looks into a mirror and figures out the thing that she should have probably done this whole freaking time in this movie, which she tried in the book and it doesn't work because that's stupid. She just looks in the mirror. It's like, stop it. Stop with the obedience. You stop that. And it works. Of course, Char then sees her holding a knife over his back and then drop it. And he's like, you tried to kill me. Which, to be fair, she did. Technically, yes. And of course, that's the moment where Edgar comes in because he's been watching from behind a two-way mirror this whole time because he's that dramatic. And he's like, oh, I saved you from this assassination plot we didn't want to tell you about because we didn't want to alarm you. But she's going to jail now and she's got to be executed immediately. Time for your coronation. It's a long, dark night of the soul, everybody. Pack in. The tone, the really dark tone, like got a little light when Lucinda showed up. It was kind of fun for there. Now it's just way back down to like really like first draft of this movie. Horrifying. When she tied herself up to a tree, she sent Slannon out to go talk to all of the elves and all of the giants and bring them to the castle. That apparently took about two minutes. And he got four elves and two giants. Including Heidi Klum. Well, he got hit that. So while Ella is in prison, this little ragtag group of misfits is just sort of hiding behind an alley, which is not great when you're a whole bunch of people dressed in bright green and also two giants. And then they find Benny in the recycled paper bin. Actually, they don't. There's this very clearly a recycled paper bin, which like earlier, the archivist lady had found Benny in the archives room and tossed him into. He's not in that. He's in the compost. I don't know why he's in the compost and not the recycled paper bin, which is right there. But here we are. Instead, the recycled paper bin is chock full of ogres. I guess they just wandered into town at some point. They're just here now. It's fine. (laughs) And they're going to stage a rebellion. And that means breaking Ella out of jail. Which Slannon starts to negotiate on her behalf, like he has his little day in court moment, but that doesn't last very long and comes to nothing because the ogres just like beat the shit out of the guards instead. Though they do tell the ogres like, no biting, no eating, not even a little. Uh Uh-uh. At some point, I think one of them starts to lift up one of the guards' hands and they're like, ah, ah. No, drop it. This movie's got some really mixed messages on the ogres, because on the one hand, the movie's like, they were once peaceful. They thought Char's dad was a real good king. And on the other hand, they very clearly have a cultural thing where they eat people. I don't know what's going on there. (laughs) Like, it could be that they resorted to eating people after they were, like, basically criminalized. I don't know. (laughs) The movie doesn't make it clear. So they break Ella out of prison, and then they check their book to go see what the evil uncle's up to. And he is literally, he's hunched over like the kid from recess, (laughs) swapping out the crown for another crown that has green smoke coming off of it, which clearly means that it's poisoned because you can poison a crown, I guess. That's right. The convoluted sleeper agent plan didn't work, so his backup was a poison crown. This this plan sucks. So here's the part where we diverge probably the most significantly from the book in that, like, basically the big conflict is Ella goes to the balls, Char figures out it's her, he chases her back home, and then the whole big conflict, which wouldn't have translated very well to screen, is like, well, you should get married to him. And she's like, oh, but I want to. But, you know, that would probably be bad for the kingdom at some point in the future. And he directly says, marry me and I love you. And then there's like this actually really spiraling couple pages where she's 
she's imagining what would happen or she's imagining every single time she was given an order and she hated it and she's imagining the future with like Hattie demanding more and more money or Olive demanding more and more of her time and um, foreign diplomats going you have to kill Char and then it's cut off by Char going you don't have to be Ella if you don't want to and she goes I'm not and that's the moment she breaks the curse and it's a wonderful scene in the book but it's so internal it would not have worked in the same way that an evil poison crown would have worked exactly yeah, so instead we have ninjas right <laughs> so they rush in to stop the coronation and this is the part that I remember seeing in the trailers and the like the, the commercials for the video it's Ella barging into the coronation which is by the way held in like a tiny little rec center hall which is covered in snakes it is festooned in snakes <laughs> the entire decor of this room room is snakes. He is very on the level. And she bursts into the room, points at Carrie Elwes and says, stop that crown. And then an action sequence happens. What's really great about the moment where they're lowering the crown onto Char's head is that Edgar is doing like scheming hands, like right where everyone can see him. He's at the front of the room facing everyone. There are four bishops here to do this coronation and everyone's like, yeah, this guy seems good. He's dressed up in snakes. I don't think there's anything bad about that in the Bible. (laughs) Snakes are always on the level in the Bible. Yep, these four bishops turn to each other. That's right. That's right. Anyway, then Edgar summons some ninjas that come down from the ceiling and they fight. Night ninjas! They were just hanging out on the ceiling, like Tom and Huck watching their own funeral style. What I really like about this is that Char goes in to save Ella from the ninjas, right? And then as they're fighting off all of these ninjas, the climax of the movie is these two characters finally communicate. It's like that scene at the end of the third Pirates movie where they're having like three ship-to-ship fights and they're like, I love you, let's get married. Hey, marry us. And then they have a wedding while they're fighting zombies. But in this case, it's, I had an obedience curse. Edgar told me to kill you. Also, Edgar killed your dad. Uh, Yeah. After the ninjas get defeated, Char confronts Edgar, and Edgar kind of has his little supervillain breakdown. Oh my god, we do a Looney Tunes thing here. Oh my god, it's great. I love it. Edgar goes on his rant about how Char doesn't deserve the crown, and his brother didn't deserve the crown. He deserves the crown. This crown is his, and he puts the poison crown on his head, and it's like a Looney Tunes oops moment, and he falls over dead. And then Ella and Char kiss over his corpse? (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a very, like, it's not he doesn't have to shoot you now. It's he doesn't have to shoot me now. Well, I say he does have to shoot me now. He goes out in the most plot-convenient way possible. He forgets the crown is poison. His poisoned crown, which, by the way, we saw him switch it out. This isn't the real crown, because I guess you can't poison a real crown. <laughs> so Eric Idle pops back in to remind us all that he was in the movie. And he says, by the way, it's the end of the movie. Everybody's happy. It's the early aughts when we all forgot how to end movies so it's time for a dance number <laughs> oh god i actually fast forwarded through this bit when i was rewatching the movie last night oh why would you they do the chorus for like 10 minutes it's don't go breaking my heart it's like a bollywood style everybody dance party also arita's here and they're friends again she doesn't have any lines she's just there and she smiles and that's that's arita's involvement in this movie and then slanted and the giant lady just make out oh i forgot to mention in the fight scene benny got turned back into a person oh yeah <laughs> mandy suddenly was like oh maybe i should work on that <laughs> this movie's a mess i kind of love it i agree that ellen enchanted wouldn't have made a good movie as is but this is a pretty weird way to get to that point again because i resent ella enchanted so much i actually get a lot more joy out of this movie <laughs> I'll give you that. And Mac, you love both of these, don't you? I do. I love both 
both of them a lot. I love them for very different reasons. Like Ella Enchanted, it was kind of like my book growing up that I love to reread, and I actually still reread it as an adult, though much less than I did as a kid. And the movie, meanwhile, is I have a list of films that are just kind of dumb fun. Brandy Cinderella is actually on there. Uh, I've got Legally Blonde on there, even though it's it's amazing. Uh, Ella Enchanted's on there. The Proposal starring Ryan Reynolds is on there. And whenever I'm feeling really bad about my life, those are the movies I put on and I feel better. And it's not like I feel better because they're bad. I feel better because they're just cheesy good times. You know, this movie isn't for me, but I think that's perfectly fair, and I applaud those reasonings. I think we're all coming at this from very different angles, but you know what? I don't want to watch this movie again, but I admit the Poison Crown thing was pretty freaking rad. I watch it literally every time I have to watch your house, FYI. (sighs) I think, if nothing else, you should watch this movie for Carrie Elwes, because... He's having fun. Oh, he's having so much fun. Carrie Ellis is having a great time. Him and his co-star, the CGI talking snake. <laughs> Books don't always make a good one-to-one translation. Something always has to change because they're completely different mediums. They require different storytelling structures. That's a fact of life. And if you're mad about something not quite being exactly like the book, well, you're going to get that. Even the line The Witch in the Wardrobe added a whole sequence about the kids in London beforehand to really strengthen some of the themes of family. It's, it's just got to happen. Sometimes it happens weirder than you think it will. (laughs) Sometimes, instead of the internal conflict, you have a poison crown. (laughs) Sometimes you add an extra character so Coraline has someone to talk to to vocalize all of her fears. Sometimes you have a talking snake that checks in with the audience. (laughs) Changing things isn't inherently bad. The movie can be kind of bad, but the fact that they changed it isn't inherently flawed. I like how you've come to terms with this over the course of us talking about this movie. (laughs) I'm being very generous. Once we finish recording, I'm going to go back to calling this a piece of shit. That's your prerogative. But I also love you. You're all my friends and I want you all to be happy. Anyway, final facts. Kit, what's your final fact? You should stop making your children read books because they have red hair or share a name with the author. (laughs) Mac, what's your final fact? Even though the movie may not be exactly like the book that you love, that doesn't make it not enjoyable. Have fun with it. Add it to your PMS playlist. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you have a PMS playlist? I mean, sometimes I go through PMS and I just cry over everything. So I need dumb stuff. Why don't you have a PMS playlist? I don't plan that far ahead. Honestly, everybody who has a period should really just invest in something like this. They should invest in pure schlock. Actually, you know what? I think that's my final fact. (laughs) (laughs) Invest in the kind of schlock that makes you happy, even if it makes other people miserable. (laughs) I think that's Mackenzie's entire shtick, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why I love her. So that's going to finish it up for for Ella Enchanted. We're going to keep going on this fairy tale kick, especially fairy tale remake kicks. We're going to look at another interpretation next time. And we are going to look at Snow White and the freaking Huntsman. With our indisputable fact that sapphic women love Chris Hemsworth. Sorry, guys. We don't make the rules. We just think he's neat. (laughs) (laughs) I Will Fight You comes out every three weeks, wherever you download podcasts. Leave us a comment wherever you like to see us. We will see it and we will think better of ourselves. I'll feel better about myself, for one. Give Annie the boost of confidence she needs. 
If you want to support us with money, you can do that at patreon.com slash the gem jam for a couple bucks a month. You can support both this as well as our other projects, uh, including Gem Jammer, which is very good. And we're starting to put up some stuff on Patreon uh, with that specifically. If you like Gem Jammer, you'll really enjoy what we've got on there. Yeah, I've started to put up some of the uh, homebrew fifth edition adaptations of Spelljammer that I've been doing. So like monster stats, different spells, that kind of thing. Those are at the $10 tier on our Patreon. We also have a new goal up on our Patreon, which is at 150 bucks a month. I am going to be GMing a Doctor Who adventure uh, and live streaming it for you guys. We got some cool guests already lined up for that thing. So please check it out. Until next time, dear listeners, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And we have fought you. Oh.